gospel portion for tonight. It's from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 12, beginning at verse 16. It's a tradition that uh, when we hear the gospel, particularly the words of Jesus, please stand. It's also a tradition that we would normally read the gospel in the center of the church as a symbol that the word of God is to be the center of our community. That we need to record it for the, the podcast. But make sure that the word of the Lord is the center of our community. Brothers and sisters, the good news according to Luke. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I shall do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with you, whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap, and they have no storeroom or barn. And yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life. Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And that it is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. How much more will he clothe you? You of little faith. Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all these things. And your father knows that you need them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, may the words of my lips, the meditation of my heart, not only be acceptable in your sight, but may they be beneficial to your people in many ways. Amen. So... It's always an interesting challenge for preachers, letting you in on a secret. 
do you preach a holiday or do you preach a text? Usually it's almost always better to preach the text. But allow me to compromise slightly uh, and to preach the text and the holiday. Or I should say the holidays. Because in many Western churches this week or, or next week, um, it will be Harvest Thanksgiving Sunday. Not to be confused with American Thanksgiving Day. Uh, but this is the time of the year when many churches um, will express uh, thanks and gratitude to God for, uh, for the crops, uh, for the, you might say, for his, God's goodness, God's abundance uh, in the last agricultural year. And of course we're coming up to the same sort of festival here in Israel and throughout the Jewish world, coming to the festival of Sukkot, which is, uh, of course, quite similar conceptually. But before we get to Sukkot, we have Yom Kippur, which, as I mentioned, starts next Sunday evening. And before Yom Kippur, we have Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. And say, you might say, in some ways, a minor holiday or a mysterious holiday. We know very little about the holiday, at least biblically speaking. Uh, but over the centuries, it's become uh, the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. Uh, it has become a time of preparation for Yom Kippur and Sukkot. And the emphasis uh, has developed that uh, this is a time that begins repentance, introspection, right? Preparing to, to really repent. And I think there's something that we must respect about all that because many times in our tradition, is it not true? We think, oh yeah, I committed a sin. I'm gonna repent. I'm gonna repent. I'm gonna just tell God I'm sorry. And uh, that can be awfully cheap and very shallow. And so having a time of prayer, as I said, introspection, reflection, listening to the scripture read in the synagogue, right, prepares one yes, for what is hopefully a, a deeper repentance. The holiday, of course, Rosh Hashanah, is known for the blowing of the shofar, because of course it's the Feast of Trumpets. And again, there's no reason given in scripture why the shofar should be, would, should be blasted uh, on this day, other than the association is made between the shofar, of course, and a ram. And when you think of the ram, you obviously if you're thinking biblically, you're thinking associatively, you think of Abraham, you think of Isaac, you think of the sacrifice that uh, was in, or was a substitute for Isaac. And so the story of Abraham and Isaac, the story of the, in Hebrew, the Akidah, uh, the binding of Isaac, and in the Christian tradition, the, what we call the sacrifice of Isaac, comes to the forefront in this holiday.
And what really struck me was how the readings uh, uh, that were appointed for uh, Harvest Thanksgiving Sunday, or Thanksgiving Harvest Sunday, really in a way dovetail very nicely with uh, the Jewish holiday, Rosh Hashanah. In the liturgy or the prayers in the synagogue, which goes over a period of two days, there is this very, very strong emphasis on God's kingdom and God's, uh, God's kingship. And if you ever have an opportunity to read the prayers for Rosh Hashanah, I, I commend them for, for every Christian interested in the Jewish context of our faith. Because it's as if the congregation is and has a sense of urgency and they're asking God, come down and rule. Come down and take control. We submit ourselves to you. We bow down to you. So here you have this emphasis on the kingdom. You have this emphasis on Abraham. And it dovetails in even a nicer way because in Jewish tradition or Jewish Bible reading, the understanding is, is that Abraham really was the first to say yes to God's kingship. And of course, you have the association between the kingship of God and the obedience of his subjects. God is king where people are obeying him and doing his will. God is king where, where people willingly, not under duress or force, accept God's rule and authority, and not just with their mouths or their lips, but by doing his will. And that, by the way, understanding should be very familiar to us because it's in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done. And it's not, Jesus isn't praying that someday when we get up there in the sky or in the messianic age or in the new Jerusalem, God's will will be done. He's praying that yeah, this is teaching us that when we do God's will, that's when God rules and reigns over us. That's when the kingdom is present. And it has, helps, I think, to push aside the idea that the kingdom is only a future reality. It is not. Probably 85% of its usage by Jesus is, the, is in the present tense. And it's not a thing, or certainly not a place. Yes, it is a verb, it is, or a verbal noun. It's an activity, it's an action. It's where, again, where God is taking control. What stops the kingdom, what, what, what you might say confronts the kingdom, what um, is the deadliest enemy, yes, of God's ruling and reigning, yes, in this world, is idolatry. Idolatry, 
Yes, the bowing down to other gods. And we would be uh, mistaken, I think, if we only understood idolatry as some kind of worship of a statue or worship of a picture. Because idolatry is much subtler and certainly more dangerous than a statue or a picture. And if you want to think about our reading and and the context in which our reading makes sense uh, in the light of this holiday, then let's ask ourselves, what are the idols of our age? And if I may be mistaken, but I think it was Francis Schaeffer years ago who said the idols of modern Western society And by the way, we can include in this places perhaps like Hong Kong or Singapore, not only the West, but but countries or societies or subcultures that are influenced uh, by Western thinking and practice. The two idols, Schaefer said, would be personal affluence, and security. This is what people seek after. Now, Francis Schaeffer died many years ago, so he's not alive in 2023. And we can almost refine that a little bit to say that the idols of our age are not simply personal affluence, but it's self-flourishing. People, and many millions of people, They want to do well. They want to flourish. But without any, you might say, relationship or connection to God. So people want good. They want the good life. They want good sex, good food, good relationships, authentic experiences. Yes. But nobody wants to do this God's way. Yes. It's going to be somehow self-generated. And there's, of course, the drive for, for security, for peace, personal peace, personal security, uh, some kind of spiritual, psychological, emotional well-being. And they, these are the motivations for millions and millions of people. And these are the idols of our age, at least in... Parts of the world, I think, in which many of us come from. And I think I could make two points about that. One, it's easy for us to scoff at this, it's easy for us to sneer, uh, to even mock, and uh, to dismiss folks as being either deceived or somehow imprisoned, yes, by the spirit of the age. But I think it's important for us to remember, yes, that uh, within modernity and within the world, the modern world that surrounds us, yes, that many people, they they have certain instincts. And there are people who want to be righteous. They just don't know how to do it. It's distorted. 
but the desire is there. The cancel culture is one example. Yes, we can again, and I'm not sympathetic to the cancel culture, but we can dismiss it and say, eh, those people, they don't, you know, it, this cancel culture is nuts. It is nuts. But there is some desire. People want to be good. But we, they don't know what good looks like. Yes, they have no biblical divine reference point. Many people want community, but they don't know how to do community or what the shape of the community of community should be. And I think for us as Christians, we need, yes, to be willing to enter the culture in order to convert the culture and not say, I'm going to totally withdraw from this or I'm not going to have anything to do with this, or I'm going to isolate myself. Because these instincts are there. But of course, they're idols. And the second point that's worth making is that many of us who say yes to Jesus, Jesus is Lord, I'm not serving myself, I'm, I'm giving my life to serve Jesus, many of us, live kind of a, a mixed life, and even at times a lie. Because on one hand, we can say yes to Jesus, and on the other hand, we, can, we find ourselves being motivated, oftentimes to do the wrong thing, by the spirit of the age or the idols of our age. And it's worth remembering that God's you might say, revelation to Israel and his warning against any and all forms of idolatry was largely given, almost exclusively given, first and foremost to the people of God. So the warning against idolatry, yes, its connection with the kingdom and obedience, yes, is a message for us, first and foremost. Because in order to confront the, the modern world in order to engage, let's use the word engage, the modern world, and not simply to wipe our hands and saying everybody's going to hell and it's impossible and there's so much wickedness because this is not what Jesus would have us to do. We have to be able to bring a message, but not only to bring a message, we have to be able to live, yes, uh, in a way that provides folks with an alternative. And I think our passage today, our reading about the rich man and the parable, you can't take it with you, yes, should instruct us and should enable us, if we put what Jesus teaches into practice, to provide some kind of clear alternative. Again, not just preaching, but also to show people that there's an alternative way to live. We don't have to live under yeah, the anxiety of you know, always wanting uh, financial security or always trying to find peace somewhere. Yes. These idols that, that people worship 
And sometimes we, even as Christians, we come under their influence, yes, create a huge amount of anxiety and a huge amount of, um, create a huge amount of, uh, more, even more than anxiety, they, they create, uh, you might say, strife and oftentimes cause us to do things that uh, are immoral or unethical. How many Christians have I known when it comes to the family inheritance or the family estate have acted in ways that are just absolutely horrible? People who, name, who call upon Jesus as Lord uh, and then to start squabbling over a will or being prepared to... Uh, to cheat somebody or to sue people, uh, sue others at the drop of a hat for some kind of financial gain. Yeah. These, I think, these are the issues. So our man, our man, you know, Mr. You can't, Mr. You can't take it with you, yes? What does he teach us? How do we start to live in, in an alternative way? And it, I think it's, we just look at this guy. And thankfully the parable in this one isn't know, terribly complicated. It just may be complicated to live out. So we have, a, we have a man who had a very successful, a marvelous harvest. And he says to himself, um, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And I think our tension uh, can stop there for a moment because the man's attitude, what should I do? What should I do? Who gave him the successful harvest? The Lord gave him. It was a gift. And here you have no gratitude. There's no saying thank you. There's no um, willingness to give back to God or to give back to others. It's all about I, me, me, mine, which of course this kind of narcissism or um, you know, worry and concern about ourselves is what pretty much underpins much of our society and even much of uh, much of the Christian experience. It's like, I'm going to church, but what am I going to get out of it? Or I'm going to follow the Lord because I'm going to get a good husband. Or I'm going to follow the Lord because surely he will, uh, you know, make sure that my needs are met. Yeah, it's that kind of motivation. Again, it's in the world, but it even it infiltrates uh, the believing communities that, uh, that we well know. And so there is no gratitude expressed. There's no generosity. There's no willingness to give back to God. Yeah. Now, what, is, what does God need grain for? You might even ask yourself, why does God even need a sacrifice? What does God need a bull for? 
as we read in the first reading. What is all that, what, what is all that about? Yeah, what, you know, what's, what's going on there? Why is it that on every major Jewish holiday there are just sacrifice after sacrifice? Most of them have nothing to do with sin. Yes, because, it's because when we bring a gift or when we bring a sacrifice, something that's valuable and costly, it is our way, or one very practical way, of expressing gratitude, of saying thank you, yes, uh, and doing it in a very tangible way. And the relationship between Israel and God, and between God and the church, works through the exchange of gifts. Right? God gives us his son. We can never repay what Jesus does for us, but we give back, we return something valuable to him. We turn our lives over to him. We give him money. We give him our time. We give, uh, uh, we give our talents, whatever it may be. And it's not an accident that the Hebrew word for sacrifice, which is karov, sorry, korban, comes from the Hebrew word karov, which is to be close. Right? Intimacy is established through gratitude and through gift giving. We give to God gives to us, we give to God, and in God's economy, He actually gives back to us again. And there's no, I don't want to disturb the Protestant Reformation here, there's, no one's repaying God because what God gives us, it can't be repaid. But it's the giving of something back, actually. He gave it to us in the first place. That, yes, that says, God, we acknowledge who you are and what you've done for us. Yes, and it's not just the fruit of our lips or something intellectual or some nice feeling in my heart. Yes, but it's, again, it's very, it's, it is very uh, concrete and very tangible. So our, our, Mr. You-can't-take-it-with-you, a character in this parable. He, sadly, uh, turns out to be uh, a man who, wanting security, looking for security, right, was going to do it but, uh, without uh, any reference, reference to God, with no gratitude, no sharing, yes, with... Uh, the greed being a form of idolatry. In fact, three times in the New Testament, it tells us that greed is idolatry. Yes. And again, people, uh, Christians will say, well, no, that's not me. But in many, time, many cases, it can be us. Many cases, we can not have enough faith to believe that God can actually provide for us and that somehow we have to do it ourselves, Or we don't have enough faith that God can actually bring us security. Or we don't quite have enough faith that we can entrust God with our future. Now, there's nothing wrong with planning for the future. Nothing wrong with having a savings account or a pension plan. But... This man's security 
Yes, this man's security was totally outside of any kind of relationship or trust in God. And that, by the way, is the, that at the end of the day is idolatry. Idolatry is anything that gives us security, right? Or provision, or even identity that doesn't first and foremost come from God. If we're looking for our security someplace else and paying lip service to God, or looking for provision and just, you know, and yeah, God will provide, but I've got to get in there and push and shove and maybe I have to break the rules and get my fair share because otherwise, <clears throat> if I don't, you know, somebody's going to get it and uh, it won't be mine. Yeah. So, what is this? How does this relate to us? And going back to Abraham and Isaac, and even our second reading. Yes, Abraham and Isaac, the passage begins, and God tested Abraham. How did God test Abraham? In the same way he tested Israel, and in the same way that he will test each one of us if it hasn't happened to, to us already. Okay? And that is God will oftentimes test us, yes, in the place, in the thing that we love, or in the very thing that we crave. We frequently think, oh, we're being tested because I've run out of money. Uh, we're being tested because I've got health problems. And that's true. Many times God does test us in those ways. But it's even perhaps more difficult when God tests us in our prosperity. Or God tests us when things are really going well. Or when we are somehow tested like Abraham. How was Abraham tested? He was tested when God says, now take your son, your only son, the son that you love. We've said here more than once, and Aaron said it the other day in a foreign country. And if you want to hear Aaron's talk in that foreign country, I'm sure he'll, he'll give you the link. That the first time the word love is mentioned in the Bible is in connection with sacrifice, in connection with obedience. That the people of Israel, yes, God tested them. God tested them in the desert and provided for them so that when they came into the land and things went really well for them, yes, and they had fields and crops and houses and, and more, that... Yes, they didn't forget the Lord their God. And of course, in their prosperity, they did forget the Lord their God. And the land spewed them out. And it's easy for us to say, easy for us to say, well, I have a life insurance policy. I have real estate. I have a pension plan. My country's in NATO. Oh, we're in the <clears throat> EU. 
And all of that is a false security. A very false security. Right? We will be tested. And oftentimes God will test us in the most unexpected places. And the reason that he brings us these kinds of situations is simply that we will know what's in our heart. He knows what's in our heart. Right? He doesn't need that revelation. We are the ones who so easily fool ourselves. We become comfortable, comfortably numb in the words of Pink Floyd. We become complacent. We become uh, assured. We are self-assured or even become self-righteous. And yet in, this, in, again, this place of prosperity and security, yes, God will test us. And if we pass the test, which there's not more than one, they're ongoing, we have a right, a right to speak to the world or the world that surrounds us. The world that, again, yes, um, is enslaved to, to the idols of our age. And to call people to an alternative way of living and to enter the kingdom of heaven, to enter that place where Jesus rules and reigns over, over the lives of those yeah, who submit to him. And that we can be living proof that God works. God's economy is different. It's not capitalist. It's not socialist. Thank God it's nothing. Mark's not Marxist. Yes, and God operates, yes, in a different, in a different kind of economic way. And that in giving, yeah, yeah, giving ourselves, or again, giving our time, giving our finances, yes, we get something back. And what we, what is returned to us is something that's forever secure. Right? God's bank is not going to fail. His property market is not going to crash. Yes, his treasury is not going to go bankrupt. Right? There's not God's... There's an old country song by the Carter family. Yeah? It was, there is no depression in heaven. Yeah? Meaning that was a song from the 1930s. There is no depression in heaven. And so if we find ourselves, yeah, being tested, or we find ourselves sometimes being conflicted, yes, worried about the future, what's going to happen to me in my old age, what's going to happen, you know, to this country, is there going to be a war in Europe? Yes, how am I ever going to find peace with the teenagers that God has given me? Yeah, whatever the situation might be. Yeah, what's, what's the solution? Well, I think, you know, it's, it is a good place to start with the words of Jesus. Don't worry, be happy. Right? Well, something like that. But I'm not quite sure, you know, that uh, that, that might be, you know, that might be enough. I, I think all of us, 
right, should take time, right, reading the scriptures and asking the Holy Spirit, is there any place in us, yeah, where we're fearful? Fearful to the point of acting in a way that's immoral or unethical or acting in a way that brings uh, shame or disrepute to the name of Jesus. Yes? Is there a lack of faith in us? Right? Can I have faith in God's goodness? Or do I just trust Him a little bit and pay lip service, but at the same time, you know, I've got to kind of, you know, perhaps uh, thin for myself. And if we find any unhealthy, broken way within us, something we should confess to the Lord, and maybe even share it with, uh, you know, with uh, other people. And I think the other thing that's really important that we read in the Passover story, in the book of Deuteronomy, John's favorite book, right, is that we need to constantly retell our testimony. We need to remember our testimony, and we need to retell the testimony. Now, for most of us, what does the testimony mean? The testimony was, well, I was a drug addict, you know, I, I sold drugs on the street. I was addicted to pornography. I was in the mafia. I was, you know, a suicide bomber. And, the, you know, and then we tell these horrible stories. And then God saved me. And now here I am today. Well, that's okay. But that's only the beginning of the story. We need to remember and even rehearse and to tell others, tell our children, our grandchildren, our relatives, the church, how has God provided for us? How has God cared for us in the past? And maybe some of us need to make a list or keep a journal and read that over and over again. Yes, because we so easily forget. We're no better than those Israelites in the desert, right? They're, they're, God is providing for them and caring for them, and right? they are, are constantly, constantly complaining and showing, certainly showing uh, showing no, no, no gratitude. And then I think there has to be certainly a reorientation. Right? Jesus says at the end of the passage that what is our main focus? The main con- our main concern, again, is not only providing for ourselves or worrying about ourselves, whether it's materially or spiritually or emotionally, but it also has... Our main focus has to be seek first the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? You know, seek first the kingdom of heaven, right? Our first priority has to be the agenda of Jesus. What agenda does he bring? It's one of healing, one of bringing reconciliation, one of bringing deliverance, right, from the demonic, right, overcoming the power of sin, overcoming the fear of death, yes, (laughs) it's the presence of Jesus. Wherever Jesus is present, he begins to work redemptively and to change lives, 
And it's our duty not only to submit to him, but to cooperate with him and the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, listen, you do these things. You know, I surely will look after you. I will look after you. So there has to be a reorientation. And can I remind us that at the end of the book of Romans in chapter 14, Paul says, yes, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is what? It's righteousness, what the society wants. Peace. Yes, peace. Stop worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow or what the stock market might do or whether your teenage son is going to wreck the car. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That should be what we seek first and foremost. And I think it's emphasized, let's go back to the Lord's Prayer. It's an emphasis in the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer starts off, Jesus says, it teaches us to pray for God's, God's name will be sanctified and made holy. We then pray really for the expansion of his kingship and that uh, those who uh, submit themselves to that kingship will do his will. And only then do we pray for our personal needs. Yes, I don't know if you can see the order, but first it's our concern for God, our concern for his expanding kingship in this world, a kingship that has no end, by the way, and will never be defeated. And finally, God cares for us, all right? But he wants us to have our priorities straight. So Father in heaven, we ask that you would watch over us uh, and that you would bring uh, peace uh, to your community, that we would not fret uh, about tomorrow, but that we would be that we would remain focused on those things that are important and essential. And we do ask these things in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus. Amen.